that laws are not self-executing. You can have great laws, but without men and women of goodwill and men and women of commitment and men and women who are willing to put their hands against the ark and push and pull, all you have is wonderful sounding laws. Welcome back to the Humble Jurist Podcast. Today, we are listening to Judge Bernice Donald of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. She spoke to the J. Reuben Clark Law Society at the annual conference in 2023. Her remarks are titled, Who is My Neighbor? Through the Lens of History with an Eye to the Future. Take a listen. So what is the rule of law? Well, the formal definition would encompass a system of written transparent laws applied equally and fairly to citizens and institutions within a country, state, or community. And all citizens are accountable to those same laws, including lawmakers and lawbreakers, leaders and followers. For me, it was at variance between uh, the written law and uh, my lived experiences that caused me to begin that journey a 43-year journey in the law, uh, 40 of those years uh, as a judge. Dr. King famously said, and perhaps Martin III mentioned it this morning, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And I want to share with you that it doesn't bend of its own volition or of any gravitational force. It bends because men and women of commitment Men and women of conscience, men and women of vision, and men and women of commitment put their hands firmly on the ark and they push and they pull the ark in the direction of justice. We in this room must apply our hands to the ark, not just sporadically, but constantly to push it in the direction of justice. People view the rule of law through the filtered lens of time, place, person and position. Depending on where we are, our perception of what is meant by the rule of law may very well change. That's why you will hear people say, the rule of law uh, is not about me. The blanket of justice doesn't fall evenly on me. When we talk about the rule of law, we're talking about that other group of people. And the law is an oppressive tool when it comes to me. The law is there to ennoble other, ennoble other people, but not me. But we live in a country where that founding principle says that the law should be applied equally and fairly to everyone. So people, uh, depending on their level of comfort, their racial or social privilege, their economic well-being, their support network, and other things like that will shape their perspective of the law. Now, we in this country have a, a rich history uh, and we cannot parse out and focus on a certain part of our history. We have to take all of that history. We just finished celebrating or commemorating uh, Black History Month, African American History Month. But I, I want to say to you with this little bit of departure, remember when we celebrate Black history, when we celebrate women's history, when we celebrate the other 
types of heritage. We're not talking about celebrating the heritage of a foreign country. We're talking about celebrating American history. And when we start to think about all of this history as American history, then we can start thinking about this in more unified ways. And we all have, you know, just like all of us have family members that we're not, you know, particularly proud of. Our country has some history that we're not particularly proud of. But the fact that we're not proud doesn't mean that it's not, no longer history. So let's look at the Declaration of Independence. There were three major ideas expressed in that document. One, that people have the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that all men are created equal, and that individuals have a civic duty to defend these rights for themselves and for others. It was never envisioned that we would just champion our rights. We were to champion the rights of our neighbors also. Now, we all know that the Declaration of Independence was an aspirational document. And the Constitution, of course, was an architectural document erecting a structure to achieve those ideals. But at the time of these documents, the Union was far from perfect, even at its inception. But we know that the U.S. Constitution pretextually extolled uh, equality, talking about we the people, even as it excluded a number of people, women, Native Americans, African Americans, non-land-owning people, um, so when we, when we talked about we the people, that definition uh, was not exhaustive. It didn't include everybody. But the structure allowed for us to grow into that, to change, to accomplish those things over time. So the framework, uh, even from the inception, was an important framework that allowed us to grow into it. Uh, you know, and I'm from a country where people, when you were a kid, they always, they always bought your clothing a couple of sizes too big so you could grow into them before you grew out of them. And so our document was something that we could grow and move toward and we could stretch and achieve. So I want to just talk about a little bit of that history uh, because the seeds of difference uh, were right there embedded in those documents and the role of the court was a protector of those rights, those ideals, sometimes. The courts don't have a perfect history of vindicating rights, and, and we know that. Um, let's look at 1857, the Dred Scott case. Uh, Dred Scott was a, 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 the, the, um, a, a slave of a, a, of a doctor who carried him from uh, a slave territory, and, and he lived into a free territory for some time. And then Dred Scott decided that he would sue for his rights. And he petitioned the court to sue. And, and the court said, you know, you don't have standing. You were not envisioned under the Constitution. Now, those of us who are lawyers and who do appellate law, we know that if a case is being decided on procedural grounds, we don't get into the merits, Okay. We just we, we, we decided narrowly on the procedural grounds and then we move on. But the court didn't just move on. It went on to, um, to, to talk about that people who were born of American slaves could never have uh, rights under the, 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 the Constitution. They could not have standing. And he went on to make some other language that was really unfortunate in saying that black men uh, were not envisioned uh, to be protected, and that we the people, and that they had no rights 
that a white man was bound to respect. Just Chief Justice Roger Taney made that statement, and his colleagues on the court, many of them, criticized him for going further than he needed to go. They said that was unnecessary. You know, it was a procedural issue, decided on the procedural issue, and we don't need to go there. Well, that was that, was that case. And then the court was confronted with Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. And again, the court, in my opinion, uh, kind of got it wrong. They said that in that case, as long as states provide um, equal facilities, then segregation is okay. The real issue, there's, there's, no, there's no provision that people be in the same space uh, engaging in that activity as a, as a shared activity. But as long as states provide equal facilities for people, it's okay. And we can, we, you know, we can live with that. That's, that's the law of the land. Well, uh, you're looking at these signs that say, you know, white and, and, and colored. Those were restrooms there, and you see the person drinking out of some things. And many of you all saw the movie Hidden Figures, and you saw uh, conditions that existed there. Those conditions were not equal. And so legislators and executive branches and states were, in my opinion, pretending to, uh, pretending rather not to see what they saw and not to know what they knew. But the law of the land said it's okay to have these separate uh, facilities as long as they're equal. Equal, uh, there was not an objective standard. It was a fairly subjective phenomenon. Um, in 1954, you know that the, K the Supreme Court um, uh, decided Brown, 1954, Brown won, saying that separate but equal was unconstitutional. They said that separate but, but equal is inherently unequal. And in 1955, they put down the remedies phase, telling the states to fix the issue with all deliberate speed. Uh, that was not uh, a standard of exactitude, so states took very, very, you know, varying amounts of time to get there, but you know, they got there. So during that time, Southern states, many of them, um, enacted these Jim Crow laws that basically uh, maintained the status quo. And uh, you're looking here at people in the, uh, uh, the waiting room, I believe. This is of a bus station. But there were, these conditions existed in doctor's offices, in shopping centers, in restaurants, in train stations, and all over the place. Um, 1956... A group of 100, I believe, and one uh, federal legislators came together, and they um, drafted the Southern Manifesto. And in the Southern Manifesto, they said some things that you will have heard today. They said that the court uh, exceeded its authority in deciding Brown. Um, they went on to say that the unwarranted decision of the Supreme Court in the public school cases is now bearing the fruit always produced when men substitute naked power for established law. And we hear people talking about that today with the court. If the court rules in a way that a group doesn't agree with, then it's like, okay, the court had no business doing this. And, and some of the lower courts are even criticized uh, for those things. They said that... Uh, we regard the decision of the court uh, in the school cases as a clear abuse of judicial power. It climaxes a trend in the federal judiciary undertaking to legislate 
in derogation of the authority of Congress and to encroach upon the reserved rights of the states and the people. Uh, they said the original constitution doesn't mention education. It doesn't mention education anywhere. And so the court just grafted unto itself this power to get in there and, and decide issues relating to equality of education. They went back in 1966, uh, they went back to Plessy and cited some of that language in support of their position. Um, so looking back at that, even in, in 56 uh, and 54, you could see that there was some movement that was, that was beginning. Uh, but I give you that to tell you that laws are not self-executing. You can have great laws, but without men and women of goodwill and men and women of commitment and men and women who are willing to put their hands against the ark and push and pull, all you have is wonderful sounding laws. Let me show some personal things. Remember Brown uh, was decided in 54, remedies in 55. Well, the first of the Brown cases was filed in 1951. So I'm telling my age now. So I was unborn when the first Brown case was filed. I was three years old when uh, the court decided Brown won, four when it decided Brown two. And I began school in 1957, three years after Brown won. And this was the school that I enrolled in. It was called the Union School. It was a two-room cinder block school, and you see the two windows there. Those two windows were in one room, but r the first window was for the first grade, the second window was for the third grade, and you see the, the bushes there in the middle. There was another window on the other side. That's where the third grade was. So that was our school. It had uh, those two rooms. Uh, you'll see a little structure in the back. That was the outdoor toilet. Um, or outhouse for the students. It had no cafeteria, no indoor plumbing, no, uh, it had a couple of um, uh, what would now be considered, uh, I guess, large space heaters uh, for the students when they went to school in the wintertime. And the rest of the black kids who went to school up through the eighth grade, they went to school at the single room black church across the cemetery. Those students would get these huge gallon uh, milk, 10 gallon milk things and bring water down for the young kids at the Union School to have water to drink. And Mississippi said, okay, there's an educational facility and that's equal. Now, I wanna show you at the time we were going to the Union School where our white counterparts were going. This was the Olive Branch High School. Uh, this picture was taken later than then, but the school was the same. This was the school that they were going to, this was equal to the Union School. Now, you know, I, I know these are grainy old black and white pictures, but I hope you can see that there is a marked difference between these two facilities. I think you'd have to suspend your imagination to find in there any notion of equality. Well, uh, the federal government was putting pressure on Mississippi. They were saying, you know, you got to change. You got to do something. If you don't do something, you're not going to get any more federal money. And so in 1958, Mississippi finally said, okay, uh, you know, we're going to do it, but we can't just do it overnight. So they implemented the choice plan. And in 1959, 
This school was built by Mississippi for the black kids. This is a plastic compliant school. It's got indoor plumbing, classrooms. Um, you know, every teacher has her own classroom. Uh, at the, the at the black church, I was telling you about where the other kids went to school. It was a single room facility, and there was one teacher for grades four through eight, and they would pull pews together. So these three pews might be the fourth grade. These three might be the fifth. On and on and on. But the same teacher taught all the grades. My sisters went to that school, some of my older sisters, and they all talk about Miss Goff, who was the teacher. Now, if you can imagine uh, what that must have been like for one teacher teaching grades that span that, that spectrum, uh, I don't know how she did it, but whatever they paid her, it wasn't nearly enough. Um, so let me move on. This is the Olive Branch High School today. It's a wonderful school. It is fully um, integrated. And in 1967, for the first time, Mississippi allowed the black kids to go to the white school. So in 1967, I went from the, I was going to the East Side High School, uh, which was this school. I transferred from there to the Olive Branch High School, that school. And uh, that's the school from which I graduated. But as I said, this is the school now. We talk a lot about education, but we don't talk about some of the other uh, daily activities that, that segregation impacted. So I'm going to show you a picture now, and I should be embarrassed to do this, but I'm not. I mean, I'm fearless. I got booed off the stage in the seventh grade, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> nothing gets me. So here, this is a picture of me. I'm the, I'm the oldest person in the picture with some of my younger siblings. And... Those of you who have smartphones, if you look back to May 17th of 1962, you will see that that's a Thursday. Because Thursday was the day that African Americans could go to the zoo in Memphis. Olive Branch, my hometown, was only about 20 miles south of Memphis. So we could go to the zoo on Thursday, and we are at the zoo there taking this picture. Now, I know we look like we're afraid that any minute the animals are going to pounce on us, but that's just how we were. Um, there was, there was no threat of danger to us. We're just posing for a photo. And when the zoo was open on Thursday for the blacks to go, the zoo put out this sign, no whites allowed in the zoo today. It was a Memphis Park Commission. And that was to avoid the race mixing. So it was also the same kind of segregation in the movie theaters and restaurants and bus stations. Uh, and if you were an African-American living in Memphis at that time, if you went to the store to buy something, a garment, uh, whatever you bought, if it didn't fit, tough. You could not take it back and you could not try it on. So you had to look at it and hope that it fit because you were not permitted to try on clothing in the stores at that time. And you weren't, certainly were not uh, permitted to take anything back. These were some of the just customary homes that some of the people who lived uh, out in the the country areas, these are homes that sharecroppers occupied uh, in many places in the south. Uh, this, I, this one, I believe, is from Arkansas. Uh, one of the other things, since we're talking about religion, uh, you know, we worship the same God. But here, uh, for black church members who wanted to be baptized, and they didn't have a baptismal pool, people were baptized in the pond. Uh, and so, but the, the African-Americans had to stand on the side of the pond and wait until the whites had been baptized before they could go in and do their baptismal. Um, in the manifesto, it talked about how this, the, the court was going to disturb the 
um, the community that existed between between the, the blacks and the whites at that time, and it was that people had come to accept the, the terms of their existence in their lives. But you all have all seen the various civil rights uh, activities, and I just put a few of these in here. I'm sure Martin III talked about them when he was here today. This is a sign that talks about African-Americans standing in line to receive food and clothing from a Red Cross relief station in Louisville, Kentucky. I want to share with you that in Fayetteville, um, pardon me, in Fayette County, Tennessee, which is now about 10 miles from where I live, um, in the late 50s when uh, African-Americans were organizing, trying to get the right to vote, uh, they were, the sharecroppers were put off the land of the landowners. And uh, the, in, in order to try to quell this notion of, of voting, um, the business owners refused to sell them food, clothing, fuel, all those kind of things, and it got so bad uh, that the Red Cross came in and put up a tent city. And that tent city existed for about three years. The Justice Department brought suit. There's a guy by the name of John Doerr. You probably have heard that name, Dan. But he was leading that litigation. Uh, people stayed in these tents with mud floors. And there were a lot of children born, you know, in that, in that uh, tent encampment. And the, the, the issue was they were trying to get the right to vote. They would go to stand in line to register, and they were not permitted to step on the grass. They were not permitted to, uh, to do a range of things that were just, just common um, because they, the, uh, the people wanted to discourage them from trying to get the right to vote. You all have all seen this iconic picture, of course, at Dr. King uh, giving uh, that great speech in Washington in 1963 where he said that, that uh, blacks in America had been given a, a, a blank check, and um, he went on to say, all the other things that uh, we've all heard in that in that speech, um, and these were some of the leaders in that movement. This is a sign from Memphis, Tennessee, where sanitation workers um, were marching for basic human dignity. Uh, they wanted the same conditions as their white counterparts. And here we're talking about, you know, who is my neighbor in the same common community. Uh, these people did not have uh, work protections. They didn't have safety equipment. If they could not work, they did not get paid. Uh, if it rained so bad that they couldn't work, their white counterparts were able to uh, still be paid, but they were not able to be paid. And that is why Dr. King came to Memphis in support of these uh, people. Uh, on the 50th commemoration of Dr. King, I moderated a discussion. Andy Young from uh, Georgia came for that discussion also because he had been in the movement and had actually been in Memphis uh, in court suing for the right for Dr. King to conduct that march at the time he did it. Um, and the city attorney was also on the panel. And the city attorney shared with me that even though he lived in an area where these people worked to pick up the garbage, he had never really noticed um, their plight. And I think as people, when we're talking about who is my neighbor, we have to make sure that we, that people aren't invisible to us. We have to be able to see people uh, in their humanity. We have to see uh, injustice if that's occurring. And, and sometimes, you know, like the TSA commercial, sometimes when we see something, we have to be unafraid to stand up and say something. And, and I know that, uh, that sometimes that will cause us to uh, maybe take a uh, a step, uh, maybe in a way that that might cause us some difficulties. Uh, there are a couple of other slides, but I want to just those are just civil rights slides. Uh, 
I wanted to share with you two other quick things and then um, I'm going to move to something a little bit lighter. I want to tell you why I became a judge. I um, was a young lawyer in Memphis uh, trying to represent people criminally accused who were poor and otherwise had no voice. Uh, And one day I was in court and a judge was interviewing a person to determine whether that person was indigent and whether the, the defendant who was accused of shoplifting could afford an attorney. The judge asked her a series of questions, some of them appropriate. But then the judge veered off into an area that seemed to me to be uh, almost a, a denial of, of dignity. The judge asked the, the defendant for her source of income, a perfectly appropriate question. And then the judge said, um, because the woman said her source of income was AFDC or welfare or something like that. And the judge said, I see that you are now pregnant. Are you having more children so you can get a bigger welfare check? That struck me as odd and inappropriate. The judge then asked her, do any of these children have the same father? You can see the stereotypes looming large. Then she asked her the question about about stocks, bonds, jewelry, that kind of a thing. And then she asked the woman, and who is the father of this child? We're not in paternity court. We're in a criminal court where the accused is charged with shoplifting. And it struck me there that under our laws, there is no requirement that anyone surrender their personal dignity in the cause of justice. And we should never require anyone to abandon or surrender their dignity, their humanity, in order to get justice. And I thought at that moment, I can do better than that. Now, I would love to tell you that I was courageous and that I ran against that judge. I did not. There was a, there was a, a vacancy, and, uh, and I ran. Uh, and, 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 you know, even though it was a vacancy, it was kind of an uphill battle. But uh, thanks to people like, like Dan and others who, who took a chance on me, I was able to, uh, to win that election. And I never abandoned my commitment of according dignity to everyone because that is so important. You may not have money. You may not have means and power, but you ought to always have dignity. And we ought to always recognize the humanity in each other. I've gone to a lot of countries around the world. And one thing I have found is no matter where I have gone, and I've gone to, I've gone to every continent except Antarctica, I have found that people basically want the same thing. They want safety and security for themselves and their family. They want to be able to achieve their God-given potential. They want their children to have a better life than they had. They want to be able to exercise their religious beliefs, their, their faith. They want to be able to maintain and have that human dignity. And that may seem uh, trite to some, but those are important things that I think bind us as people. And I found them to be present everywhere I've gone. In 
on September 17th of 2022, Judge Don Willett, a Trump appointee on the Fifth Circuit, and I wrote an op-ed. And we talked about how to overcome some of the tribalism that we see each and every day. And we gave uh, some prescriptions. And I'm going to just share those with you briefly now. Uh, This was published in the Washington Post. We said that uh, people need to log off. We spend so much time on social media where there's no one really to check our beliefs, our biases, and we're just kind of spewing out things without, without really thinking how they may uh, be received, who they may hurt, uh, and whether or not there's any basis in fact. You know, we all have beliefs, but sometimes... You know, our beliefs may not be uh, well-founded. I've told people all the time, I, I never sought to surround myself with everybody who looked like me or thought like me, because if I did that, I had no one to help me guard against my own blind spots. And all of us have blind spots, so log off. Uh, online instability seems to fuel a lot of this boorishness that we see in life today. The next thing we said is learn up. Focus on, on education. We, you know, there was a time when we read the great works and we read uh, the newspaper and we really talked about ideas more so than people. Now you hear all the time that our civics IQ is way down, that many people don't know the three branches of government. And when you talk about a Supreme Court justice, people think that Judge Judy is one of those uh, justices. Uh, the judicial branch is uh, likely the least understood, and because judges can't go out and defend their positions, we speak through our opinions. Um, people have a view. They believe that judges are politicians. They believe that judges are deciding cases on ideological uh, grounds because they don't know. And, uh, and, and, and that's being fueled in a lot of different areas. And the next thing, reach out. Um, Judge Willette and I thought that it was really important because people think judges are in these camps. We thought it was important that I, an African-American woman appointed by Obama, and Judge Willette, a a male white appointed by Donald Trump, that we could come together and agree on something and write it and put it out there um, because we agreed on those things we think is important. Uh, You know, democracy... Uh, and, and building and keeping a democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires our active participation through education, through learning, and through, through eliminating um, ideological, religious, and other kind of biases that may exist. We also encourage people to pull back, not to view everything through a political prism. Uh, some things may not have um, a political basis, but we will filter those through our political beliefs and make them intensely partisan. So pull back. And then we said, you know, plug in, get out and do something to, uh, to enhance uh, our nurture your citizenship. Uh, do the kind of things that you're doing. Go out and build community. Go out and, and, and help foster uh, through service projects, through talking to people, through sharing stories, and through learning about other stories. All of that helps us when we see and know each other's stories, I think we can see each other in different lights. 
And finally, open up. Engage in difficult conversations. We avoid those things because we don't want to offend. We can engage in difficult conversations and still be respectful. And we can move the needle uh, on building community. We can, we can engage in conversations around religion, around race, gender, sexual orientation. And I know a lot of those conversations took place during this conference. And it's important to build, have those conversations in order to, to close some of that gap. You know, I had a lot of um, experiences that stay with me today uh, from when I went to, uh, when I changed schools. And uh, for those people who, who ended up with a high school class, uh, I'm envious of those people because I didn't have that. I was in the physical space, but I was not of the class. And so when you talk about your high school classmates, that's something that I, you know, didn't have. I don't have. I didn't, I never got to know uh, those individuals. We were just there together and we moved on. And uh, I'm sure we're all somewhere in the world now, but I don't know. The, but it's important to learn each other's stories. And it's important to make certain that we build on those lessons of the past so that we can become better people today. I shared one experience that occurred, and somebody asked me afterwards, how did you avoid being bitter? My mother was a woman with a seventh grade education, but she was a woman of deep and abiding faith. And she gave us some lessons that I believe are appropriate for me to share with you today because those lessons are part of who I am today. I tell people that law school taught me to be a lawyer, but my mother taught me to be a judge because she taught me about fairness and she taught me about decency and she taught me about respect and hard work. My father taught me courage, self-confidence, generosity, risk-taking, and he gave me my zest for life. My mother taught me the lessons uh, that have given me the foundation on which, these are my colleagues on the Sixth Circuit, on which everything else rests. She taught me first to have faith in God and a power beyond myself and man. And she taught all of that, taught all of us that very early in our lives. She instilled in me that I am as good as anybody else, but I am no better than anyone else. She taught me that there's good in everyone, but she said in some people, you have to dig a little bit to find it. She taught us that jealousy, envy, and hatred are forces that will ultimately demoralize and destroy you. She taught us to give a full day's work for a full day's pay. She said anything less than that is stealing. And she taught us, because she was a domestic for most of her life, she taught us that there is value in all honest labor. She said don't fear or shun people who are different because to those people, you are different. She said you can't control what people think of you or say about you but you are entirely responsible for your reputation, for the reputation rather that you create, and you must hold yourself accountable for how you respond to people. She taught us that we should never be afraid to stand alone and to stand up straight because if you do, nobody can ever ride your back. 
And she said, if you fall down, which you will in this life, don't stay there. Get up and move forward. Now, that standing along principle sometimes got me in trouble. And I want to share with you a story because I know that Dan Norwood is an excellent lawyer and he will protect me um, even as he protected our community. I want to just, before I get into this, I want to tell you that, you know, so many times we don't act because we're afraid of what people might say about us, to us, how they might regard us, and about the, the consequences, the negative consequences that we may suffer. Dan has never been afraid to stand. In Memphis, Tennessee, he brought the lawsuit that challenged the electoral process in our community, and he is responsible for successfully filing that suit and winning it so that an African-American had the opportunity to stand for election and become mayor. And Dan is responsible for, in 1991, Memphis getting, no matter what you think about the mayor, he's responsible for Memphis getting its first African-American mayor, and I am uh, so grateful that Dan is a person who is unafraid to stand, that he doesn't measure how this is going to affect him, but he does it for the good of the community. Now, let me tell you how standing got me in, I guess, a little bit of trouble. When I was going to the Black High School, not the Union School, but the, um, the East Side High School, uh, home of the Dragons. We used to have a talent program once a month on Wednesdays. We had some very talented students at that school. They could sing, they could dance, they could play instruments. And I always went to the talent program and very much wanted to be on the talent program. But when I took my talent inventory, I had no talent. Now, rational people would have said, okay, you have no talent. Don't press to be on the talent program. But did I stop? No. I went to the talent coordinator and I said, look, I really want to be on the talent program. And she said, no. And I didn't stop. I went back again and I said, um, I'd like to be on the talent program to recite a poem. And she said, no. And I continued to press my case because, you see, even then I was persistent. And finally, I think she must have thought, I am never going to get rid of this woman, so I'm going to let her be on the talent program. And so she did. She put me in the middle. Talent program was always on a Wednesday, Deborah. And so that Tuesday night, I was so excited. How many of y'all saw the movie Rocky? You know, Rocky won. I know there were a lot of Rockies. Well, you remember when he was getting ready for the big fight? And, you know, he's, the adrenaline is pumping. He's back there. He's just, you know, the energy is just really over the top. That's about the way I was, waiting for my moment. This was my moment. This was my time. I was finally going to be on the talent program. And so after some hot song and dance number finished, it was my time, Steve, to go out. There was a stick microphone standing in the middle of the stage, and I walked up to that microphone and I stood, and I surveyed the crowd, and then I began. Two roads diverged in the yellow wood. Sorry I could not travel both, but be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. 
And then a curious thing happened. A noise began to fill the auditorium. People began to boo and hiss and yell, get off the stage. We don't want to hear that poem. In that moment, I realized that they were inviting me to leave the stage. And I decided to decline their invitation. (laughs) And I stood there until I recited every line and every stanza of that poem. Now, they didn't hear it. Didn't hear it. But I stood there and I walked off the stage utterly humiliated because that confirmed for me that I had no talent. And so I never again kind of bulldoze my way onto a talent program. But you know, there's a passage in the Bible that says, the Lord will make your enemies your footstool. There was a certain person in the auditorium that day booing. I could see that person because, you know, I kind of liked them. And they were booing and yelling. And fast forward, what that experience taught me was that even when you're rejected, it's not fatal. I didn't die. I went home, I was embarrassed, but the next morning I got up, I went to school, and I'm still here. But, so with Dan's help and some other folks' help, I became a judge, criminal court judge. I'm dealing with criminal misdemeanors and felony preliminaries. One day, that very person that was booing loudly, one of them, Uh, I'm sitting there in my black robe. I'm in my elevated position. I am ready to do justice. (laughs) And all of a sudden, who appears but one of those guys from my youth who was booing. And he walked to the stage. He had been accused of a crime. And as he walked there, very nervous, and he stood there, and I had my four bailiffs around the courtroom with their Smith & Wesson weapons on their side, And as he stood there nervous, I had the most incredible urge to recite the road not taken. (laughs) But but the Lord restrained me. So, but you know, it's, it's real. I tell you that because my mother taught me to stand. If it's something I believe in, stand. And there were a lot of lessons. I didn't understand them then, but there were some deep lessons that have kept me even today. And I'm getting ready to close because Mr. Hardy told me 45 minutes, and I'm probably really close to that. But now, because Dan is here, and I know he will protect me, and he won't let you all boo me, I want to leave with you a poem, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I haven't gotten over it yet. So this is what I want you, in, in terms of things to go forward to build community, when we're thinking about who is our neighbor, I want you to think about these things. You know, in the country, people planted gardens, and they shared the fruits of those gardens with their neighbors. They helped feed people in the community. And I want you to share your bounty with your neighbors. And our neighbors are all over the place. This is the garden I want you to plant. In this garden, I first want you to plant five rows of peas. I want you to plant the P of preparation, the P of perseverance, the P of prayer, and the P of proximity. Brian Stevenson says that we're not going to get beyond these issues we have now until we get proximate. So I want you to plant the P of proximity. And then I want you to plant three rows of squash. 
squash discrimination and bias, squash indifference, and squash tribalism and unjust criticism. Then plant five rows of lettuce. Let us be faithful to duty. Let us be unselfish and loyal. Let us acknowledge and celebrate the dignity of all people. Let us ensure that the law is applied fairly and equally to all of God's children. Let us apply our hands firmly to the ark and bend it toward justice. No garden would be complete without turnips. You should turn up with enthusiasm to make a positive difference in the world. You should turn up with a message of hope and love. You should turn up with new ideas for service and apply those new ideas to some of the old problems that seem to be intransigent. Turn up with new allies in the fight for justice and turn up with a new determination to make everything count for something good and worthwhile. And when tomorrow comes, you should be able to say, Lord, this is a new day. This day is a gift from you filled with promise and opportunity. Today I will do great things because I am great. I am great not because of who I am, but because of how I serve. Thank you so much this evening for your attention and your presence. It's been my pleasure.